Hello, this is the Talking Michigan Transportation Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Cranson. Last week, Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer signed legislation that bans the use of handheld electronic devices while driving. The legislation had a number of advocates, none more so than the League of Michigan Bicyclists. Here today to talk about why his members worked so hard to get these bills over the finish line is Matt Penniman, Director of Communications for the League. Matt, thanks for taking time to be here. Jeff, thanks for having me on. So, obviously, uh, as you and I have discussed, bicyclists, uh, um, which I count myself as one, are more vulnerable than drivers and passengers in traditional vehicles, which means that there's a lot of incentive to support these bills. Uh, talk about talk about what the bills mean to to you and your members and how you think they'll help. Yeah, I think we've seen a lot of folks decide uh, to switch from riding on roads to riding on trails precisely because of the distracted driving issue. You know, bicyclists are more vulnerable to distracted drivers and also more aware of distracted drivers because we're right at the the height where we can see through the the passenger window and see when people are on their phones when they're driving. And it's it's unfortunately too common. We really want drivers to put phones away, drive phone-free as much as possible. You know, if you need to use it for navigation, you know, put it in a dash mount, but as much as possible to break free from your phones when you're behind the wheel and give 100% of your attention to the task of driving 100% of the time. Uh, we're really glad that these laws have passed. Um, the National Transportation Safety Board advises states to go even farther and to ban phone use in cars entirely, including hands-free, because there is a cognitive distraction element too, even when you're using it hands-free. So that's it's funny you say that because that's exactly what I was going to ask you about next. Some of what you heard from opponents is that, well, you know, this this won't really make a dent anyway, and then you turn around and say to them, so are you saying that we should just ban phone use altogether? And they're like, well, no, no, I'm not necessarily saying that. <laughs> so, so I mean, how do you reconcile that? I, I know what NTSB says, but if you can do something, you should do it, right? That's, that's, that's how you feel. Exactly. Uh, this does take a step forward. It takes a step in the right direction. It starts to shift the culture to make people think, hey, maybe I shouldn't be doing this in the car. And we do know from other states that have passed these kind of laws, they make a difference. Um, there was a study that looked at Oregon, Washington, and California and their laws and how they really did reduce rear-end crashes um, in the states that had a good, strong uh, law without loopholes, uh, like Michigan's law. Michigan's law is, is pretty strong. Yeah, and I, I spoke with, uh, a, a, a few episodes ago, um, a vice president for Cambridge Mobile Telematics, which is a company that works with insurance companies to get people that are incentivized to volunteer to have their screen time tracked. Mm. And it showed that in Ohio, uh, there was a 9% decline in distracted driving as, as counted by screen time in the wake of the bills passing and all of the, the media push that surrounded those those bills passing. Um, I'm, I'm hoping we see something similar in Michigan. But uh, outside of that, you know, we, you can't expect police to, to catch everybody doing this, just like they don't catch everybody speeding or doing other, you know, illicit things. So what do you think should be the goal to try to, to make people aware of this? Well, I think it's got to be a culture change. I think you've got to get to a point where right now you would be shocked if you were in a car with a friend and they cracked open a can of beer. 
and were holding a, an alcoholic beverage while they were driving. I want to get us to the same place with phones, where you would be shocked if you called your friend and they picked up and they said, oh, yeah, I'm driving. You you should feel and they should feel, wait, this is this is not OK. This is a breach of the social contract. I should not be on a call or texting or otherwise messing with my phone while I'm driving. Yeah, that would be quite an achievement. I Do think it's uh, going to take a while to get there. But yeah. that's what I get. <laughs> yeah. Obviously. Well, what what do you want to do is with the league going forward? I mean, education on this, education on, on other things. I mean, I, I admit as a cyclist, I I ride on trails more often because I feel safer. But if you're riding for exercise and you're sharing the trail with others, you know, people sometimes walking three abreast and you say, you know, on your left and they move to the left, it's uh, it's it's difficult. So, sure. you know, how do, how do you, I guess, how do you balance those things? I mean, I think you have to figure out your purpose and what's the best, uh, the best type of riding that's going to fit your purpose. For me, a lot of my riding is for transportation, to get to work, to run errands, to get my kids places. So I'm using a mix of trails and bike lanes, depending on the road condition, depending on the amount of traffic um, to, to achieve that. And sometimes that means slowing down when I'm in a, a heavy pedestrian area. Sometimes it means speeding up when I'm with cars that are going 35 miles an hour, uh, riding in a bike lane alongside that kind of traffic. How do you? How many miles do you think you ride a day for with with purpose, other than recreation or exercise, where you're actually doing something that involves getting your kids somewhere or you know a, a commute? Uh, it depends on the day, but usually five to ten miles. Okay. An e-bike, so that makes it a little easier. Yeah, yeah, that's that's interesting. Well, that brings me to the other topic I I wanted to discuss, and that is e-bikes and how much has has happened and how they they've taken off uh, in Michigan and elsewhere. At first, uh, I was I was concerned about how we coexist with you know bikes that are going to be going faster, especially than some people who are just riding for recreation and maybe are on the trail but not going that fast. And now you've added another conflict point to people who are you know rollerblading or skateboarding or walking so what's what's your long-term outlook for how they they mesh with everything else i think e-bikes can mesh pretty well with other users um a class one or class two e-bike the e-bikes are under state law uh in a three-class system class one and class two the motor can only assist you up to 20 miles per hour so you're not going any faster at the top speed of assistance on those e-bikes than a fast cyclist in great shape. The class three will go up to, you know, more like 26, 28 miles an hour. But those high class e-bikes are not allowed on paved multi-use trails. They're only allowed in bike lanes um, along roadways. What are we learning about people complying with that? You know, it's it's voluntary, so you will always have some jerks out there who who are disrespectful. Um, but for the most part on the trails I ride, I have not seen a lot of conflicts. What do you you think? I mean, based on the numbers you're seeing and how they're they're proliferating, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> despite the expense, the, the upfront expense. I think uh, once you've made that that purchase, the the maintenance and uh, you know, operations probably don't cost that much more than a, than another bike, right? Right. Yeah. And um, when you compare it to even a cheap car, it's it's pretty affordable. 
and certainly does a lot more for our carbon footprint. Sure. So what do you, what's your prognosis? I mean, what's your crystal ball tell you about, you know, where where we are with e-bikes a year from now or five years from now? I think they're taking off and I think we'll have a successful integration of them into our transportation system if we can build more safe places for people to ride. Uh, you know, there's a saying, we'll have peace on the road when everyone has a piece of the road. And I think I think that's true. I think it'll be uh, easier to integrate e-bikes and other kinds of micromobility uh, if we have good quality separated protected bike lanes uh, that form a complete network that people of all ages and abilities can use. Well, when you talk about thinking, you know, holistically and a, ch- a change in culture and, you know, just a, a mindset and how we look at things, knowing that Michigan has had, as you know, a decades long problem with underinvestment and in infrastructure. And we know things now that we didn't know 50 or 60 years ago about how we build roads, uh, which is interesting because, you know, we had bicycles on roads before we had cars and yeah. you know the whole story of the the Horatio Earl and mm-hmm. you know the the early the early leader at a Michigan Department of Transportation was a was a bicyclist that thought we needed better roads for bicycles and then we came so far from planning roads that that uh, and, and this this is all states and the federal government but planning roads that still allowed for the safe use of bicycles now we're kind of going back in the other direction but it takes it takes money and it takes a commitment. What what states or countries even? I mean, we hear about you know Denmark and Copenhagen uh, and certainly the Netherlands. But do you look to that that are really models for how we should integrate bicycling with other vehicle travel? I think two states to kind of hold up as models are Washington State and Massachusetts. Massachusetts does a really good job of data collection. They can. They have a statewide map of all their bike infrastructure. They do an annual report of the state of their their bike infrastructure. So you can really see their progress in in terms of building out a complete network. I think that kind of data gathering is something that Michigan should seriously explore, so that we're making data driven decisions about how to build out the network. Washington State, I think, does a really good job at capturing uh, the benefits of shifting travel from from motor vehicles to bicycle and transit and other kinds of modes by taking account of the cost of crashes. You know, if we if we look at the cost of repairing vehicles, of healthcare, of lives lost in motor vehicle crashes, that's really a significant amount. And by investing in these modes that are lower hazard, that are that are creating less hazard uh, for other users, we can remove some of those costs and really create a lot of savings. Do you feel like in your discussions and your your colleagues' discussions with lawmakers that that's starting to resonate that, okay, don't do this, even if you don't really care that much about the environment or believe that we're in an environmental crisis and don't do this just because it's the right thing to do, but do it because there's a bottom line associated with it. Does that Does that resonate? I think so. I think more lawmakers are are open to the idea of, you know, we're seeing the cost of new vehicles and even used vehicles go up so much that that so many families are having to put a larger and larger portion of their budget to purchasing, maintaining and fueling vehicles. Isn't it great to give people options that are more affordable, that are going to meet their transportation needs 
without imposing all these costs on the rest of us too, um, and and make those options feel safe, feel that they provide access to everywhere they want to go, uh, that they work for people of all ages, whether you're eight or 80. I, I think more people are are waking up to the idea that this has real potential. Um, you know, a lot of us are going to outlive our ability to drive. I, I hope I do anyway. Uh, my grandparents certainly did. There were, you know, several years at the end of their lives where they weren't able to drive anymore, but they still wanted to be able to get out of the house and go go places. I think things like electrically assisted trikes and other kinds of micromobility are going to give people those options that maybe a few generations ago they didn't have. Um, the more we can do to make those choices supported and safe, I think the more we're going to realize the benefit of kind of a diverse transportation ecosystem where it doesn't have to be one thing for every job. You can have your e-bike for your, your shorter trips and your inner city bus for your longer trips or, or whatever. We'll be right back. Stay tuned. If you need to get out and stretch your legs, don't forget about the annual Mackinac Bridge Walk. Make your plans to attend the walk on Labor Day and take in some of the best views in the state of Michigan on the Mighty Mac. For more information, go to MackinawBridge.org slash walk. Yeah, I, I think one of the biggest things, I mean, you, you think in terms of what the workplace can do to support this and support people and encourage it or incentivize it. And one of the simple things that I hear a lot from people is, I'd ride my bike to work, but on a hot day, I'll be all sweaty when I get there. So, you know, how about a shower at the workplace? Um, sure. Those kinds of things. I'm sure you hear those same things from people. Yeah. And, and I think those are definitely useful. I, I talked to one person who is like a lot of my professional wardrobe includes skirts. I don't feel comfortable riding a bike in a skirt. Um, my work doesn't provide a place to change or keep clothing. So a bike is not an option for me. That would be a real simple change. E-bikes are also nice in uh, that you can dial up the assistance on a hot day so that you're not sweating so much. I'll That's also- a good point, too. You could... Yeah. Uh, on the way in, you maybe you use the the electric motor more, but then on the way home, you pedal for exercise. Exactly. Yeah. You have that flexibility. Yeah. Well, so what else are you guys working on? Well, we have just a couple more minutes, I guess. What uh, what are you, what are your hopes and dreams for future, you know, legislation or or public outreach? Uh, sure. I think one piece we're looking at is that data gathering question of what makes sense for getting a better handle on what the current state of our non-motorized network is like. Uh, I think one piece we're looking at is complete streets. MDOT has a complete streets policy that was passed by the State Transportation Commission uh, back in 2012. I haven't seen any uh, updates or reviews of that since then. You know, Maybe it's a good time for, uh, since FHWA has come out with new guidance on complete streets, including a report to Congress, um, maybe it's a good time to revisit that and encourage communities across the state to take a look at their complete streets policies and make sure they're really doing everything they need to. I think there's there's a lot of resources out there now on complete streets that didn't exist a few years ago. Um, and if folks just have a policy that's been sitting on the shelf, they may not realize there, there are some of these opportunities out there in terms of federal funding, in terms of design guidance uh, for things that we know now are more effective ways to do uh, bike infrastructure. So I think 
I think it's a promising time. I think there's a lot that we can do together. And uh, I'm really hopeful that as we see the EV transition go ahead, we can also see a multimodal transition that uh, enables more folks to make the choices that work best for them uh, and have those choices be safe. Yeah, I think you make a really good point about the complete streets policy and, you know, a need to maybe be constantly looking at it and thinking about the evolution. Um, it's probably good that I would acknowledge here Tim Fisher, who uh, worked in, in my office at MDOT for a while and now is with the Michigan Infrastructure Office. When he was at the Michigan Environmental Council, he did a great deal of the heavy lifting to get that complete streets legislation through and to Governor Granholm's desk and then eventually to the State Transportation Commission, and so did um, my good friend and uh, someone who's been a guest on the podcast before, Suzanne Schultz, who was the planning director in the city of Grand Rapids at the time. So I think maybe it is time to engage a lot of those folks and and take another look at, at what more can be done because a lot has changed since then. You're right. What yeah. what in the in the simplest form, uh, you know, what would you look at? Well, I would look at Smart Growth America, which every year recognizes the best complete streets policies across the country and has offered a framework of what they look at for kind of rating those policies for their effectiveness. Does our statewide policy you know, hit all those boxes? Uh, do we have a model policy to propose to communities that would hit all of those boxes? You know, questions like equity, does this really serve all the communities that have been historically disadvantaged? Uh, implementation, does this policy uh, let us track our success over time? Does it let us measure how close we are to completion or to where we want to be? I think those are some things that may not be intuitive. Um, and I think having a strong model policy might help communities that have a lot going on uh, really look at their their complete streets policy that maybe was passed you know, five, seven years ago and say, oh, this is a really simple way we could improve it and make sure we're doing the right things. Yeah, I think I think those are really good points. And uh, yeah, again, I think you're right. We should we should always be looking at those things. And I guess one of the challenges you have to keep in mind is that the the different the disparate people that were brought together to finally get some consensus on this all define success differently. And that's what can make this so challenging. Sure. But I do think it helps to define success publicly um, so that your constituents can hold you accountable for whether you're setting the right definition and whether you're meeting your own definition of success. Yeah, well said. Well, thanks again, Matt, and, and congratulations again on uh, the, the work and success that the league had um, in their part in getting these distracted driving bills finally to the governor. Thank you very much. And I do also want to note all the families of distracted driving crash victims uh, that spoke out in support of these bills. There were many, many families uh, and advocates that came forward, including folks from Transportation Improvement Association, um, the Horrell Fam Family Foundation, the Kiefer Foundation, who um, who really played a big part in making this happen. Yeah, absolutely. There were some very compelling stories and those people were part of the bill signings on June 7th. And uh, I, I think it, it felt like a good day for all of them, but that's always bittersweet because of the memories that it provokes for sure. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, thanks again, Matt. Thank you, Jeff. I'd like to thank you once more for tuning in to Talking Michigan Transportation. You can find show notes and more on Apple Podcasts or Buzzsprout. 
I also want to acknowledge the talented people who help make this a reality each week, starting with Randy Debler, who skillfully edits the audio, Jesse Ball, who proofs the content, Courtney Bates, who posts the podcast to various platforms, and Jackie Salinas, who transcribes the audio to make it accessible to all. 